trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Come, pull up a chair. Revel in wrong think. Not just because it's trendy, but because it's actually kind of a matter of survival these days. I'm joined by my friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you this fine day? Well, I'm good. I just wish I could afford some lobster. Yeah? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I'm, uh, you know, I look around and I see a lot of stuff that, uh, you know, I think rightly causes me concern. But at the same time, uh, it's kind of exhilarating to live in a time where um, I, I don't think there's ever been a better opportunity for people to stand up and and become someone that you could be proud to become. And, and I don't know if that, yeah. hopefully that makes sense to you, but it's, I, I see great opportunity as well as great risk. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Uh, I agree with that wholeheartedly. 30 years ago, you could just kind of, you know, wander through life because things were generally pretty calm. Wasn't much controversy and you didn't really have to push yourself or think about things too deeply. Now you do. It's, as you say, uh, almost a matter of survival. So people do tend to rise or fall according to the expectations. So, you know, the crises that we face, yeah, they're in, in many ways unpleasant, but they're also exhilarating. So I absolutely agree with you. It's, you know, I, I know there are a lot of, there's a lot of talk right now about uh, the shooting down in Allen, Texas, and, of course, the predictable calls for gun control and so forth. And yep. I just want to ask you, I, I'm sure you see it as well, but how, how do you respond when people start getting shrill about, well, see, this just proves why we need to, to take these guns out of the hands of people. It, do, do you respond or do you just uh, let it roll off your back and say, you know what, there's no reasoning with some of these folks? There really is no reasoning with these folks. You can't use logic. Uh, you can't draw inferences. Uh, you know, I'm 6'3", 230 pounds. I can throw a punch. So should my, my hands be tied behind my back because potentially I could throw a punch at somebody? Absolutely not. You know, it, it's the same. It's exactly the same principle. And by the way, my understanding as regards this particular shooting is that it was a gun-free zone, which it always is. For some reason, mass shootings seem to never happen at police stations, at NRA conventions, <laughs> or in my neck of the woods where everybody is armed to the teeth. Why is that? Once again, you know, you can't you can't reason with these people. No, and and the people who are inclined to engage. Well, let's have a discussion on this. I I don't know if they understand that. Uh, there, you have nothing to gain by negotiating with people who are looking to take something from you. You know, so don't don't bother negotiating. If if it's if it's yours, just keep it. Absolutely, and also, uh, what we're dealing with here is essentially an infantilized mindset, an emotional. Um, mindset rather than an adult reasoning mindset. Uh, we used to refer to uh, achieving the age of reason, by which was meant the uh, separation between childhood and adulthood. And, you know, a child gets angry, a child emotes, it screams, it cries, it wants what it wants right now, and there's no reasoning with a child until it arrives at the point where it's capable of reasoning, and then you can have a discussion and you can point out facts and uh, you can come to some kind of a mutually agreeable understanding. You can't do that with adult children, so we just have to exercise containment. And as you say, by simply not accommodating them, you know, they they get mad, they stamp their feet, they shriek and yell. Let them. 
you know, we're, we have to be adamant in, and, and stand up for our rights and refuse uh, to be intimidated by these people, much less accommodate them because we just want them to shut up and go away. Here, here. I knew I knew that you would be a source of common sense on this issue. Let's talk for a moment about uh, uh, an article that you posted, I guess, just this morning about uh, don't yep. don't drive that car. Uh, this is this is a pretty sobering article, and and I'm surprised that yep. it's actually BMW that's saying don't drive the car. Yeah, it's a multifaceted thing. I'm sure everybody who's listening to us has heard about the Takata airbag scandal, um, uh, which involved hundreds of thousands, essentially, I think, even millions worldwide of vehicles that were equipped with airbags made by a supplier called Takata that had uh, a designed-in defect that caused them to literally spray shrapnel in people's faces when they went off. Uh, And the BMW is now urging people to not drive uh, affected vehicles that may have those those airbags. And what's interesting to me is it's BMW, the car company, not the government, that's urging people to not drive the car. Uh, The government just says, oh, you know, take it in to get replaced when you have some time. So, you know, it sort of says something about the government's concern about our safety. Mm -hmm. And then there's another aspect to it, uh, which is that it's not just the defective airbags. You know, if you think about your your car's belts and hoses, uh, over time, they deteriorate and they require replacement after a period of time. It's just in the nature of things. Airbags are no different. So, you know, after your car is 12, 15, 20 years old, all of the components that make up the system, not just the airbag itself, but the sensors, the wiring connections, et cetera, and so forth, they've been exposed to life for 15 or 20 years, and they begin to degrade, and they might not work, and they become unsafe. Um, you know, if you look in your car's owner's manual, I do this because I test drive new cars, I read the manuals, there's usually a caution that says, uh, you know, if your vehicle is a certain um, number of years old or has a certain number of miles on it, uh, it's a good idea to have the airbags replaced. Now, of course, the problem with that is by the time your car is 12 or 15 years old, you're not going to want to spend the many thousands of dollars that it's going to take to replace those airbags. But then, you know, how much is your life worth? So you're put in this impossible position. Uh, you know, you either spend more than the car's worth to uh, avoid being killed by the airbag, or you just throw the car away. Wow. Yeah, that does that does pose a pretty serious dilemma. So, uh, so what would you say? Better to go with older models uh, pre-airbag? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, for, for that and, and other reasons. You know, these airbags, it's not a massive danger, but it is a danger nonetheless. And, you know, we live in a society where, uh, you know, if it saves even one life, this hysterical obsession with safety overall, except when it comes to this particular issue, which I find interesting on a number of levels. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm a big booster of getting uh, cars that were made before uh, airbags were required and before a lot of other things were required, too, including things like uh, direct injection, uh, variable valve timing, cylinder deactivation, and of course, all of the advanced driver assistance technology that we love so very much. Oh, <laughs> sorry, my sarcasm detector just <laughs> burst into flames there. <laughs> yep. Uh, I, I don't blame you. So talk to me about, I know you've been you've been actually test driving something here lately that, yep. uh, that actually kind of scratched an itch for you. Talk to me about that. Oh, sure. You know, the whole reason I got into doing what I do is because I like to drive. <laughs> and every once in a while, I get a new car that satisfies that urge or scratches that itch. And, and uh, the one I have right now is the Mazda Miata, which is, it's a remarkable vehicle because it's 2023, but it is the distilled essence, the apotheosis of everything that driving is about. Standard manual transmission. Uh, it has a very small vestigial touchscreen that Mazda just kind of threw in there, uh, you know, as an afterthought. 
uh, ridiculous cup holders because you don't drink coffee while you drive this thing. You drive it. Uh, you put it on and you drive it. It's as close to riding a motorcycle as you can get with the additional upside of being able to put the top up when it rains. Wow. So uh, talk to me about horsepower-wise, um, how does this thing compare to you know a performance car? I mean, does it, does it have plenty of get-up-and-go? Well, it's a sports car. You know, there's a lot of uh, overlap and mishmash. You know, a Mustang, let's say, or a Camaro is a sporty car. Uh, a Corvette is a high-performance car. 911 is a high-performance car. The Miata is a sports car, like an old Lotus 7 or an MG or a Triumph. So it's not all about maximum horsepower, though it has plenty of that. It's got 181 horsepower from a very high-revving four-cylinder engine that spins to 7,000-plus RPM with a wonderful uh, close-ratio uh, six-speed manual transmission and short throw shifter. It just is a, an absolute ball to work that car, particularly through the curves. Wow. Well, it sounds like fun. And, uh, okay, I, I hate to ask this, but since gas is not getting cheaper, yeah. um, how is it on gas? Well, and that's another reason why this car has been in continuous production since 1989, which is astounding for a car of this type. For a two-seat roadster, not the most practical car in the world, right? Right. Uh, and it, over the course of the past 34 years, how many other sports cars have come and gone? Pontiac, Solstice, Saturn, Sky, uh, Toyota MR2, there's a bunch of them. You know, they just come and they go. Uh, one of the reasons that the Miata doesn't is because it's actually a, quite a practical vehicle for a two-seat roadster. It gets like 35 miles per gallon on the highway. Well, nothing wrong with that. I'm yeah, just, so it's really not that much less economical than a typical economy car. Um, just a heck of a lot more fun to drive. And the other aspect of it, which gets into the cost of ownership, these things are unkillable. You know, everybody knows it. If you go out today and drive, just look around. You're going to see a Miata. And more than likely, you'll see one that's 20 years old. You can take these things to track days every weekend, and you can beat the snot out of them, and they just keep going. <laughs> Okay, you're making the case that uh, driving is supposed to be fun, not just, you know, the utilitarian get me from point A to point B kind of experience. A heretical thought, isn't it? Like life being about the pursuit of happiness. Right, right. Okay, well, I, I got to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on, mm -hmm. on our commercial break, but uh, my guest is Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. We have more to talk about. There's a lot of current events going on. You would uh, probably benefit from an informed take. Well, Eric has plenty of informed takes. By the way, there's a link to his website in today's show notes. You can check those out at thebrianheidshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. Eric, you had a very interesting article last week about an exchange between uh, Secretary of Transportation mm -hmm. Pete Buttigieg and uh, is it uh, Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky? Yeah. Tell me about mm -hmm. that. Yep. Well, it was really interesting because it just revealed uh, something about the people who are dictating policy with regard to transportation. Massey has, a, has an electrical engineering and, I believe, a mechanical engineering degree. So he has actually got some curricula vitae to, uh, to discuss the subject matter. And he asked Buttigieg, uh, how much electricity does uh, an electric vehicle use when it is charging? 
when it is hooked up to your home uh, relative to, say, a running refrigerator? And Buttigieg had no idea. The answer is 25 times. Oh. You know, and it went on like that. And he, and he essentially just deconstructed the whole narrative and pointed out that the argument that people are going to save money uh, by buying an EV, leaving aside how much it costs, because they won't have to pay gas, pay for gas, is fatuous because they're going to be paying uh, not only an equivalent sum for power, they're going to be paying much more for power. People are going to get sticker shock like you wouldn't believe if this whole thing really does ramp up. Uh, the estimate is that the typical person is going to be paying two to three times and potentially five times as much each month for utility bills if they have an electric car that's plugged into their house. Well, and you point out in your article, one of the questions Massey was asking the Secretary of Transportation is, can the electrical grid handle yeah. that that many cars, you know, trying to charge? What was his answer? Well, very glibly, uh, you know, Buttigieg, just like a lot of these other, I, I believe, I really, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm just kind of freestyling here. I consider these people to be pathological. They always smirk when talking about something that's serious. OJ does that when you hear his interviews. Um, various other, Clinton did it. You know, they, 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 as if they're laughing at you and mocking you. And he acknowledged that the capacity isn't there. He acknowledged it. And yet they're continuing to push this on people. And the inevitable result, as Massey pointed out, is that absent some massive increase in the generating capacity, there are going to be blackouts and brownouts. There's going to be rationing of energy. Energy is going to get much more expensive. And, of course, for Buttigieg, who cares? He's a government worker who gets paid six figures to impose costs on us and smirks about it. Wow. No, that's uh, how, how frustrating. And, and it's not just him. You're right. It's others others as well. You know, us, us, us peons out there in flyover country couldn't possibly comprehend what's what their great minds could. I just... I marvel every time I turn around, Eric, and it seems like there's just another angle that the political class is using to try to impose their vision of what's best for us upon us. And and it seems like in every case, somehow it makes our own lives worse. Yeah. One of the facets that really bothers me about this is that there's no longer any pretense of expertise. And Buttigieg is an excellent example of this. I believe his degree is in literature. That's, That's his academic background. And somehow this person is the Secretary of Transportation. He knows nothing about transportation. He has no business being the Secretary of Transportation. And yet he's, his arrogance is insufferable. You know, he's perfectly willing to simply uh, issue decrees. Yes, we must have 50% or 75% of the nation's vehicle fleet be electric by an arbitrary date just a few years from now, irrespective of the feasibility, irrespective of the cost, uh, and irrespective of the desires of people to, to go down this road that he's pushing us down. It's, it's incredible. And I guess our duty is just to uh, shut up and, and take it. Well, I, I think that's what they think. And I also think, and I think they're right, that they're getting away with it because so far most people have yet to come face to face with what this is going to mean to them specifically in terms of their everyday lives, in terms of what it's going to cost them. It's kind of an abstract thing when you hear about electric cars. Well, that guy down the street's got an EV. I don't care. You know, I'm not going to have one. He can drive his EV. But as this ramps up, if it continues to ramp up, even if you don't buy an EV, you are going to see the cost reflected in what you pay each month for electricity because these costs are going to be transferred to all of us. And it's not going to be just utilities. It's going to be everything else as well. No, I, I hear that. Let's uh, let's shift gears here for a second. We've got about, uh, got about five minutes left here. But okay. I want to talk a little bit about uh, your, your article on uh, Paul Stanley, the former yeah. lead singer of KISS. And uh, his struggle session uh, for, for holding 
wrong opinions. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to figure it out. Stanley, uh, the lead singer for Kiss, uh, is a guy in his 70s. He's fabulously wealthy. He's fabulously rich, and he's old. You know, he's in his 70s. And so he didn't really have a lot to lose when he, he tweeted something, I guess, about a week ago, criticizing this, um, this, this pushing of sexual fungibility on children, uh, specifically gender reassignment surgery and all of that, and talked about how it's aberrant. And it's one thing for um, an adult who wants to do that to themselves to do it. It's another thing to try to normalize that and push that on kids. And it was a laudable thing that he did. Well, within about 24 hours of his having done that, he backed up big time. I don't know who got to him. And my article's title is, they must have the negatives. Uh, Somehow he bowed to the pressure. And I can't figure it out because, again, he's famous, he's rich, he's old. What can they do to him? Even if he never played another concert again or ever earned another cent again, he's set for life. And yet they managed to get to him. So the only thing I can think of is that they've got negatives of him having relations with a goat backstage or something like that. It is scary. And, and I, you know, I know it's kind of tongue in cheek that you're saying this, but then again, we think about, you know, um, the whole Jeffrey Epstein client list and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, for all the, you know, going after the January 6th, you know, people, people who were parading without a permit or whatever, um, Nobody has ever been arrested who was on uh, Epstein's client list. In fact, all the proceedings right. from Giselle Max Ghislaine Maxwell's uh, trial are are you know sealed. So it it makes you wonder if if maybe there there isn't something a little hinky taking place there. Well, there also could be a benign explanation, which is a sad one, and it's just that these people are utterly spineless. That they're so desperate to have the approval of the people. Uh, in whose circles they swim. You know, if you're a rich celebrity, you hang out probably with other rich celebrities, most of whom are probably virtue-signaling leftists. You know, they don't want to be left out, so they get uh, they get ostracized for saying something that, that deviates from the orthodoxy, and they find they're not invited to parties anymore, the phone's not ringing, and it could be as simple as something like that. Wow. I But at the same time, there's a part of me that wonders, and this is based on, um, I think it was Eric Margolis, who's a Canadian journalist. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Mm-hmm. Talked, mm-hmm. talked about being invited to a, a some kind of get-together. I don't remember if it was a party or some kind of a press conference or something. It was taking place at Jeffrey Epstein's uh, Manhattan apartment. Mm-hmm. And when he showed up, one of the first things that the butler or whoever, you know, the, the houseman offered him was he says, well, you know, can I get you some refreshment? If you would like, we could arrange for a massage from a young yeah. lady. And he recognized it as a honey pot and said, nope, yep. no thanks. Because he yep. says, that's the kind of, that's how you get yourself blackmailed. Sure. Apparently, Alan Dershowitz, the famous Scheister lawyer, did accept a massage and has had to, has had to sort of come up with some explanation for that ever since it became public. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of lessons that you can draw from there, but I think one of the biggest ones is um, very powerful and influential people are also very likely compromised. And so when you see right. them, when you see them all towing the line, it, it may not just be a matter of, well, they're smart and they're rich and they're influential and they know what's best so much as somebody's got the goods on them and is, is making sure they know you don't question what's going on. Yeah, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to believe that as a young candidate, let's say, uh, moves up the food chain, whether it's in politics or uh, in, in Hollywood as a celebrity, whatever you have, uh, they, you know, the, the money people behind all of this, uh, they help to promote people that they know are compromised, that they have something on them, because of course, then they're useful to them, aren't they? Oh, without a doubt. I believe that. I think that that is, is a practice. I think that happens a lot. 
Well, and uh, I, we don't have time to go into it, but, you know, our intelligence agencies, let's say that they've been a little less than truthful. <laughs> Hunter Biden laptop, you know, you, you get right. the picture. Right. You know, we have so many examples of this, of, of somebody in a position of authority who you think, based on everything that they've done in the past, would take a certain position and then takes a different one that's odd. For example, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts somehow finding Obamacare constitutional. Exactly. Good example. Eric, great as always to visit with you. I will uh, send as many listeners to your website as possible. Thanks again for taking the time to stop by and visit. Oh, you bet. Looking forward to next time. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, also Borelli.com, TMCPNation.com, and climbingupward.com. In fact, I just want to mention this real quick. Mother's Day is coming up, and uh, you might want to consider going on to uh, climbingupward.com and ordering the uh, Climbing Upward music. John has come up with some marvelous music, and uh, the, the deal is this. 25% off anything ordered through next Monday. So if you order it before Mother's Day, actually through actually to Mother's Day and beyond, 25% off, plus my listeners get an extra 10% off if you use the coupon H-Y-D-E. So 35% off any and all purchases. Again, that's it. ClimbingUpward.com. All right, so a couple of different things here. Um, people who are very serious about their freedom are going to be willing to vote with their feet. I think we've seen this a lot in the last couple of years. Matter of fact, I'm actually counting myself among those who, uh, you know, chose to vote with my feet. Not that, now I was living in Utah and I, I got to say, Utah is not the worst state, but there were still some things that were very disturbing, especially living in some of the major population corridors that, uh, man, COVID really brought out some ugly realities. And I noticed when I would go to visit family in Idaho, one of the things that really struck me was how normal Life seemed in Idaho. Now, Idaho had its problems as well and still does, but common sense was a lot more common. And when, when we talk about people being willing to relocate, basically to uproot themselves, I'm out of here. I don't like what's going on. I'm headed for Galt's Gulch. You know, it makes you think of Atlas Shrugged. Well, John Miltimore, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, points out that we are actually having, America's having an Atlas Shrugged Moment. In fact, it, it arrived some time ago, and it's IRS data that shows this is happening. It's not just the high taxes that are driving people out of cities. There are other costs like moral, social, cultural, associated with spurning property rights and celebrating looting. Thought you might find this interesting. He says, last September, billionaire Ken Griffin announced he was pulling up stakes and moving Citadel, his gigantic hedge fund, from Chicago to Miami. Apparently, Griffin said the Windy City was out of control. That's what he told Bloomberg. Something that dawned on him after a colleague made a coffee run and was robbed by a thief who put a gun to his head. Now, John Miltimore writes, It's no secret that Griffin's exit 
is part of a much larger migration taking place across America. Data show that several populous blue states, namely California, New York, and Illinois among them, have been losing population and companies for years. In 2021, Forbes wrote about the refugees fleeing blue states for red ones. A few years before that, a headline in The Hill touched on the great exodus out of America's blue cities. But John says new IRS data, however, show the speed with which blue states are losing taxpayers and their adjusted gross income is increasing. So a recent Wall Street Journal analysis found that more than 100,000 people left Illinois in 2021, taking with them some $11 billion in AGI, or adjusted gross income. That's nearly double the 2019 total. For for New York, rather, it was $24.5 billion, an increase of more than 150% from 2019. California, meanwhile, saw its AGI loss $29 billion, more than triple since 2019. Now, John Miltimore writes that people are migrating from these states is important, but who is migrating is equally important. And he says the data paint a bleak picture for these states. Taxpayers giving up on the Prairie State and the Empire State made about $35,000 more per year than new arrivals. For Florida, the data is even more stark. Average income for a new arrival to the Sunshine State was roughly $150,000. That's more than double those leaving. In other words, the geese with the golden eggs are flying away. That's according to economist Daniel Mitchell, referring to the IRS data. So needless to say, these data don't bode well for the future of these states, but not everybody is concerned. The Atlantic, for instance, accepts the reality that a major migration is underway, one that undercuts the conventional wisdom that democratic states are the future, but rejects the idea that they're dying Jerusalem Demis writes, New York City isn't some dystopian wasteland where no one can see their future. (laughs) I don't know, after the the events of the last week or two, uh, maybe maybe I'd beg to differ. Uh, John says, Demis may be right, but it's hard to deny that there's a dystopian character to what we're witnessing in many major U.S. cities, including, including surging crime, failing schools, and social unrest. Yet he says, there are reasons to believe that these problems are going to get worse, not better. Losing wealth creators and affluent workers doesn't just affect the economic landscape, it also affects the political landscape. So in a recent Wall Street Journal op-ed, Alicia Finley pointed out this primarily works to the benefit of public sector unions and welfare activists. Finley writes, cities are losing the voters who keep their leaders from going off the rails. Noting that Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot was defeated by Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson, who ran to the left of Lightfoot. Johnson's margin of victory was relatively thin, some 20,000 votes. That's a fraction of the 175,000 people who left Cook County between 2020 and 2022. And Finley points out, and it stands to reason, that these are the very people the city needs to get back on the rails. So John Miltimore says, you can see the cyclic nature of this phenomenon. As cities and blue states become more confiscatory and hostile to property rights, they drive out wealthier people and wealth creators. And as prosperous people leave, their politics become even more confiscatory and hostile to property rights. And the cycle continues. I mean, that does have some shades of of Atlas Shrugged, right? He says there's something very Randian in this phenomenon. After all, the basic plot of Atlas Shrugged involves a small group of industrialists living in a dystopian future in which they struggle to keep their businesses afloat while fighting against an oppressive government and mooching politicians. 
And eventually they say to hell with it and walk away, taking with them their wealth, creativity, and innovations. This is very similar to what we're witnessing, except that we're not talking about just a few rich industrialists like Dagny Taggart and Hank Reardon, two of the heroes of Atlas Shrugged. It's not just the Ken Griffins who are leaving, but hundreds of thousands of wealth creators who are voting with their feet and opting for greener pastures of opportunity. This is a more realistic version of Atlas Shrugged. The novel was, in many ways, an epic mystery. Agatha Christie meets Cecil B. DeMille. People are disappearing and we don't know why. As Taggart and Reardon struggle and eventually form a love affair, we keep hearing about some mysterious figure, John Galt. And eventually, of course, we learn that Galt is a disgruntled visionary and entrepreneur. He's inviting the best and brightest in society to join him in abandoning the looters and leaving them to their own fate. He explains why in a long speech near the end of the novel, which touches on Rand's philosophy of voluntarism, individualism, and capitalism. Okay, here's a quote from the story. All the men who have vanished, the men you hated, yet dreaded to lose, it is I who have taken them away from you. Do not attempt to find us. We do not choose to be found. Do not cry that it is our duty to serve you. We do not recognize such duty. Do not cry that you need us. We do not consider need a claim. Do not cry that you own us. You don't. Do not beg us to return. We are on strike. We, the men of the mind, we are on strike against self-immolation. End quote. Now, it's good storytelling, but it's not exactly believable. John Miltimore says what we're witnessing, however, is a mass movement of people who are tired of having the fruits of their labor seized to fund increasingly dysfunctional government systems. He says, we often forget that entrepreneurship is the lifeblood of an economy, and societies without it wither away. And many of these states and cities have become hostile to entrepreneurship and wealth creation. Shark Tank entrepreneur Kevin O'Leary recently told CNN, I don't put, put companies here in New York anymore or California. Those states are uninvestable. The policy here is insane. The taxes are too high. So as Griffin's exit from Chicago shows, it's not just high taxes that are driving people out of cities. There are other costs as well, moral, social, cultural. When you, when you create communities that spurn property rights and celebrate looting, you better believe people are going to pack up and go somewhere that's a little more hospitable. John Miltmore says, IRS data only tells us so much, but if you want to better understand those costs, he says, pick up a copy of Atlas Shrugged. I know some people are pretty dismissed. Well, I went through an Ayn Rand phase when I was young. When I was, you know, a kid, I looked at Ayn Rand and thought that uh, she was all that in a bag of chips. And, and I'll admit, she can be pretty wordy. <laughs> okay, she was probably paid by the word for Atlas Shrugged. I mean, a 50-page speech, whew, that's a bit much. But the underlying principles hold up. And it's probably worth considering, you know, what would it take... How intolerable would things have to get where you are before you would consider packing up or, let me put it another way, taking your ball and going somewhere else to play? I don't know. I don't know that I could answer that for you. I wouldn't presume to answer it for you. I think each one of us has our own little threshold of pain as to how much we're willing to endure. But the fact is, it is happening. And it's happening for good reason. Governments are becoming more confiscatory. They're becoming more oppressive. Maybe it's time to find a little island of freedom while you still can. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Again, my goal here is not to fill you with a sense of dread over how awful things are becoming. Although, you know, looking around us, there's there's a lot of reasons to be concerned. No doubt about it. If you're paying attention, you would... There's no way you couldn't have an uneasy feeling in your stomach. But I share these things with you, not because, hey, let's uh, let's all uh, revel in misery or let's revel in, in uh, you know, a sense of hopelessness. I encourage my listeners to revel in wrong think because I believe that at some level you feel a calling to step up and be a source of light in a world that really needs more sources of light. You know, you know for sure whether or not you feel that that pull to stand up and do something and what that is. I can't, I can't tell you. I wouldn't presume to say, oh, yes, and this is, you should probably do this first and then this. That's not my thing. That's something you need to work out with your creator. But I can tell you this. I'm very confident that there are a lot of people feeling that call right now, and if you're one of them, I'm begging you to don't ignore it. <laughs> don't, don't turn your back on it. Lean into it. Embrace it. Become a kind of person you could be proud of becoming. A couple articles I want to share here in the closing segment here. Uh, this is one from J.P. Shirk from uh, American Thinker. Federal government burns the whole house down. It's discouraging to me to see that uh, the January 6th the prosecutions continue. In fact, they just secured uh, the conviction of a few more defendants last week. Solid indicator that the purge of patriots is still very much ongoing. J.B. Shirk says the Department of Injustice secured more J6 wrong-think convictions last week, this time netting four Americans for seditious conspiracy because they were not members of Black Lives Matter or Antifa. Now, you may think he's being tongue-in-cheek, but there's a lot of truth in what he's saying here. Regime thugs Merrill Garland, Merrick Garland, rather, Christopher Ray and Lisa Monaco, the titular heads of Americans, America's Gestapo forces, actually took a victory lap and stood solemnly together while warning Americans that this is what happens to those who dissent from the federal government's enforced truth. If you squinted, you could almost see the Imperial Eagle flags draped behind them. And he says, watching this bad theater play out as if it resembled anything close to real justice always feels like a gut punch. The federal government has spent the last two years lying about everything that happened on January 6, 2021. The liars transformed a million-person protest into election fr- against election fraud into an insurrection, even though the people supposedly trying to overthrow the government arrived at the Capitol unarmed. The government alone killed Trump voters that day, and no protesters killed anyone. But the state-controlled corporate media continues the echo fake president but real liar Joe Biden's claims that MAGA extremists murdered 10 or more police officers for fun. Undercover officers from numerous agencies worked not to keep the peace, but rather to spread mayhem, threaten the protesters' safety, and entrap otherwise law-abiding Americans. A complicit news media covered up the action of known Antifa operatives who posed as Trump supporters while breaking windows, tossing metal barricades, and egging the crowd on. And even though a masked, gloved, and hoodie-wearing suspect threatened both Republican and Democrat politicians with pipe bombs on January 6th, Billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of bureaucratic man-hours allocated for the sustained persecution of Trump-supporting patriots have somehow been insufficient for America's premier law enforcement agencies to track down the real mass casualty threat. It's a great point. 
So this is State Kabuki Theater. And he says, it stinks to high heaven. Now he says, uh, this, this is the problem, though. The beauty of the Fed persecution is first the brown shirts find the thought they'd like to punish. Then they look for a preformed group that makes a conspiracy easy to prove. Lastly, they look for a single act of vandalism that could be framed as force. Voila! You get prepackaged seditious conspiracy right out of the can. Being a tyrant is easy-peasy in America today, especially when the state-directed media and a cabal of ideologically aligned prosecutors, judges, and juries all work together to pre-convict. Rather daunting, right? See, the problem with Merrick Garland's gloating jubilee intended to impress upon the public that he and henchman Ray have been wickedly successful in using Trump-hating judges and juries to convict Trump-supporting defendants. Prosecutors routinely remind juries that it was Trump who was really on trial is not just as showboating has permanently destroyed Americans' residual faith in the criminal justice system. The bigger problem is that an evil deep state that abuses the law to lock up its critics now has taken us down a path promising Americans no prospect for future reconciliation. J.B. Shirk reminds us Ben Franklin's join-or-die political cartoon was an effective call for colonial unity against a common foe. Today, the federal government says join or die, which means do exactly what we say or we will treat you as an enemy, lock you up, and throw away the key. Now, with that kind of message being uh, disseminated, there will be nothing to join because the United States will dissolve into warring parts. Political divisions will only worsen because those with power rub salt in open wounds. A house divided cannot stand, especially when the federal government chooses to burn the whole house down. Wow. I like J.B. Shirk's writing. I think he's, he's very direct. And this, this brings me to, to another point. Right now, the, the, the cry for gun control is as shrill and loud as I've ever heard it. But there's an essential truth that has to be acknowledged. And I'm not telling you, go get in arguments with people. Um, I, I think Masad Ayub put it very well. There are 10% of people who are, I would say... Um, solidly convinced that their side is right and nothing is going to budge them. And about 10% on the side for gun control, about 10% on the side against gun control. But that 80% in the middle may still be open to persuasion. So I think it's on us to make sure that we're doing what we can do to be persuasive, credible. And that means we, we cannot uh, just fly off the handle and thump our chest and, ah, you know, come and take them. But the key thing that I would ask you to consider is that the state lacks moral judgment. I re- there was a family I knew back when I lived in Oklahoma who had a, a little chihuahua named Tiny. And any time you rang their doorbell or knocked on the family's door, Tiny would go into full attack mode. I mean, we're talking full bug-eyed, frothing, you know, just he would carry on like, like it was the end of the world. And once... The door was open and the person was invited in. Tiny would just compose himself, you know, but every time he heard somebody at the door, man, he freaked out. And I think about that any time there's a high-profile shooting because uh, gun control advocates tend to do the same kind of thing. They react dogmatically the only way they know how. It's this Pavlovian response, shrill demands, overreaction fueled by emotion, and this instinctive reaction to certain media buzzwords. But unlike Tiny, these rabid gun control advocates seldom find the rationality to compose themselves. 
after all they have enablers in the press urging them on and they just wear themselves out barking and spinning in circles. And maybe they begin with good intentions, just like Tiny, the dog, did. You know, I'm protecting the, the home. I'm protecting everybody. But somewhere along the way, they lose sight of the bigger picture of what's actually at stake. And most importantly, you can't take them seriously because they lack that critical quality of moral authority in what they're urging. So to put this plainly, individuals who claim to be against self-loading military-patterned rifles in the hands of the populace have a very curious blind spot when it comes to the very same firearm in the hands of agents of the state. They'll say, well, these are weapons of war. They have no place on the streets of America. They're only useful for killing large amounts of people quickly. But is that really true? Because if that's true, then why do we allow, for instance, our law enforcers, uh, enforcers to carry it if it's only for killing large amounts of people quickly? How is the so-called assault weapon magically transformed into a noble instrument of democracy when wielded by someone who's wearing the state's costume? Anybody who's had training will understand that these rifles have legitimate utility for home defense or for community defense, and that's an application that reaches beyond law enforcement. Rugged, dependable, defensive firearms create the necessary parity of force to end a murderous murderous rampage, rather. I think about this quote from Jeff Snyder 22 years ago when it comes to, you know, putting all your trust in government. He said, the responsible use of firearms depends precisely on sound and moral judgment. And no republic is founded or stands upon the notion that the government possesses and exercises moral judgment superior to the people. All you have to do is look at the well-documented genocides of the 20th century to learn that no one kills with the efficiency or abandon of a lawless government. By the way, in every one of those genocides, you realize, of course, that the targeted groups were first carefully disarmed by law. There's a lesson there, and that can only happen when unquestioning blind trust is placed in government rather than in the character and personal responsibility of the people. Now, there have always been evil individuals who've used whatever means were available to inflict harm on others, but renouncing your liberty in some misguided attempt to prevent anything bad from happening again is not just wrong, but it's, it's also criminally short-sighted. This is The Brian Hyde Show.